A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. At 18, Lucas Strasser Heard had dreams of becoming a doctor, specifically a trauma surgeon. He wanted to help others. Instead, on November 23, 2013, he laid on an operating table as a trauma surgeon worked to try to save his life. Lucas was stabbed multiple times, twice in the right upper abdomen, once in the right backside of his abdomen, and once in the front right upper chest. That wound punctured both his heart and his lungs, and would have been potentially fatal on its own. He was bleeding both internally and externally. Lucas also had multiple blunt force injuries to his hands, arms, ankle, and back. And he suffered 11 injuries specifically to his head. He was kicked and hit over and over. That led to concussive brain injury, skull fractures, brain bruising, and further bleeding. Despite all the best efforts from doctors, Lucas could not be saved. I remember going in there and he had a blanket over him and I pulled the blanket back and he had staples all across his chest. Two big, like from here to there. And I'll never forget this. I remember he was wearing a black shirt and people like, sometimes you just remember things that are odd. And it's like, I remember thinking, where do you get this black shirt? I never seen him wear it before, right? And uh, it turned out at the trial, they showed the shirt, it's a white shirt. You know, it was black from all the blood. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. If you're just joining me for the first time, go back to the previous episode to hear the first part of this important series. This is the conclusion of the final homecoming of Lucas Strasser Heard. On a cold November night, in 2013, it took mere minutes for a group of guys to kick, stab, and beat Lucas beyond recognition. It was a complete swarming, like he had no chance, and they they pinned him in where somewhere he couldn't escape, right into the dumpster. There's no way he could have gotten out once they encircled him there and got him through the ground. There's he had zero chance. Some of Lucas's closest friends were there that night and tried to stop the savage assault. That included Bryce Sunberg. There were no surveillance cameras in that alley, so witness accounts would become key evidence in this case. It came out to be that, like, I was able to remember things so well because I was sober, and I don't think any of my memories were affected because of drinking or anything like that, and I was unable to, like, I guess, understand what was happening more, be in more control. With Bryce's help, along with other witnesses, homicide detectives began making arrests. Murder charges have now been laid against two young men in connection with a deadly weekend attack. What began as a senseless argument outside a downtown bar has ended one young life and forever changed two others. Nancy Hicks reports. Two young men are now behind bars in remand. 19-year-old Franz Cabrera is charged with second-degree murder. 18-year-old Nathan Gervais is charged with first-degree murder. We have reason to believe in, uh, in the case of Mr. Gervais that there was some premeditation to his actions. Monday, the forensic crime scene unit searched the area where Gervais lives for any further evidence in the case. Police say as many as 10 people were involved in the swarming, and investigators say further charges could still be laid. You might remember the name Nathan Gervais. Bryce mentioned him in the last episode. When Lucas was swarmed in the back alley, Bryce recognized Gervais as one of the attackers. 
He thought maybe, since they shared a mutual friend, he could convince Gervais to stop. But it was no use. The deadly assault continued. Yeah, they're punching and kicking him. And he had got, he had actually broken out of there and ran back towards the alley and they chased after him. And that's when, at the time, I was still trying to worry about Nathan when they, he had broken out of the group. So I guess they had pinned him into the dumpster and that's where they, he had fallen down and started kicking and punching him and doing whatever. And then they're calling Nathan in, like, Nathan, come on, like, as I was trying to confront him. And that's when he ran in. He just completely ignored me, like, he was right focused on that. A few days later, as Lucas's family prepared for a funeral, a third man, Josh Pook, was charged with second-degree murder. Calgary's chief of police at the time said his detectives were committed to finding and arresting Lucas's other attackers. You will be held accountable. You get involved in an assault that's of that nature, you are going to be held accountable. There's no such a thing as one innocent punch or one innocent kick, not in an event like that. It was nearly three weeks later before a fourth man, Asmar Schlaw, was arrested and charged. And then, more than a month later, a fifth man, Jordan Liao, charged with second-degree murder. That would be the last murder charge laid in this case. Four were accused of second-degree murder, and one was accused of first-degree murder. Both first- and second-degree murder come with an automatic life sentence in Canada. If convicted of either offense, the difference would be the years they'd have to serve before they could apply for parole. It was hard for Lucas's family and friends to accept that some of his attackers were never arrested. Instead, the focus was on the people who the prosecution believed could face a reasonable likelihood of conviction. It's really hard to take. Like it's, uh, it's like a slap in the face to our family. You know, like he, Lucas was, Lucas was hurt really bad. We watched him die right in front of us. Lucas's father, Dale Hurd, had hoped police would track down every single person who participated in the deadly attack on his son. Some witnesses estimated there were more than a dozen people involved. All the people that did this, like it's, they could do it again to, to, to somebody else's child, you know, they obviously have no, no reservations to, to, to kick and stomp somebody when they're dying on the ground, you know, that's, uh, that's pretty, pretty horrendous if you ask me. It's very concerning, I would, I would hope that the citizens of Calgary would be concerned that there's still people out there, but I, I, I fear that it's the, the not in my backyard type of thing, or it's not going to happen to me type of thing. Every single person that has Lucas's blood on their, their feet or their hands or anything should be charged. And uh, myself as his father, I, I'm not going to rest until, until everybody is charged. To make matters worse, within days of arrest, one by one, each of the young men accused of murder in the case was granted bail. Even the man who faced the most serious charge of first-degree murder, Nathan Gervais, was let out of custody. He was granted release just days before the first anniversary of the deadly attack. There were tears and shouting this afternoon in a Calgary courtroom. In a rare case, bail was granted to a young man accused of first-degree murder. As Nancy Hicks reports, the victim's family and friends are outraged. Every time Dale Hurd goes to court, he hopes for justice for his son. But he has yet to feel that's happened. I'm furious, absolutely furious and disgusted with our justice system and with the judges. Friday, Nathan Gervais was granted bail on $50,000 cash and $100,000 surety. He's charged with the first-degree murder of Lucas Strasser Hurd. It's just a disgrace that this has happened. and the It's like they don't take this seriously. You know, the trial's not going to be for over a year, maybe a year and a half, and uh, the guys that killed my son are out there, going to be out there celebrating Christmas with their families, and my, my son's lying in a grave. It's, uh, it's horrible. Dale Hurd is outraged about the decision and has started a petition to stop it from happening again. There should be no bail for a murder charge, 
at all. You know, murder isn't shoplifting. It's not uh, stealing a car or anything like that. It's you took someone's life and you destroyed another family. Like the other accused, Gervais had a list of conditions he had to follow. And his lawyer said he would have to spend most of his time at home. Work, school, medical emergencies, court, visits to counsel, and now reporting. That's it. Otherwise, he's home. While as a parent, I'm sympathetic, totally. The issue is judicial interim release. The fairness to this individual vis-a-vis the other four that are already on bail. But house arrest was little solace to Lucas's family and friends. The images of Lucas's attack replayed over and over in Bryce Sunberg's mind. We tried about everything, like, as much as I could. Like, I was trying to plead with Nathan initially, saying, like, hey, man, like, please leave him alone. Like, we're friends with this guy, like, that was our mutual friend. And he just wasn't even listening to me. He was just telling me to, like, back off. And then that's when they called him into the alley. And, and I was trying to, trying to say, like, okay, guys, like, please, that's enough. Like, let him go. All this stuff. I was just trying to, like, beg for them to stop and leave him, like, let him be. And they were not stopping. Like, nothing was stopping them. The people Lucas was closest to quickly learned the old saying, time heals all wounds, isn't true. Probably the hardest year of my life was just trying to get that out of my head. Like, I had nightmares for months, playing the same thing over my head nonstop. Then I started having, like, dreams of what if Lucas was fine and he made it and all the time, like, transitioned more into positive things, but it was still really hard to battle. I battled with depression for a while. And I think a lot of us did. Like Lucas, his best friend, Ramsey Sharawi, was only 18 when this happened. He struggled to cope with the loss. To be honest, for a long time, I didn't know how. And even now, like, I don't really know how, I guess. The easiest way for me, like I told you, is just to like not think about it. I try to keep busy, just do other things. Like, not only did my best friend like pass away, but like I watched his whole family like basically like crumble. Like everything like went wrong when that happened, and like it's what can you do about it? That was probably the toughest part. And then there was Julia, Lucas's little sister. The most recent memory I have of him being alive is him unconscious on a table and that's the clearest memory I have of him is seeing just this thing like it wasn't him I didn't see life in him and just it's just like I said it's like something you see in a movie it's not I just someone no one should ever have to see that in their life but Someone who's, like, in grade four. Grade four kid shouldn't see that. It's just, I still deal with that image. And, you know, that's how I, that's, like, one thing that pops into my head. That's, like, the first thing that pops into my head when someone asks, so, do you have any siblings? And I just remember, yeah, he's underground. You know, he was, it's hard. I'd never know what to say. Julia was half Lucas's age, just nine years old, when she witnessed her hero die. Nothing has ever been the same since then. It tore our family apart. Um, seeing my dad in so much pain, it just broke my heart. I tried so hard to like do everything I could, but I couldn't, I didn't know what to do. And I was still dealing with like the fact that I lost my brother, but I couldn't even imagine how it hit my dad. And financially, it just was financial turmoil. It was like, now we have to pay for his funeral. We have to pay for all this other stuff while my dad still has to work to put food on the table. Like it was already tough. But then after that, it just went downhill, like hit rock bottom. and. It's been hard to get up. Like, my dad, it's hard for him to work because it's just so much stress and anxiety. 
that stress and anxiety would only increase as time went on. Lucas's family was dealt a series of debilitating blows leading up to the trial. His dad, Dale Hurd, was already struggling emotionally and financially, and then he was laid off. Thankfully, another father, someone who understood exactly the trauma Dale was trying to cope with, stepped in to help. Vacation time was used up immediately. Uh, that covered about the first 10 days. Wasn't long after that before the savings were depleted and the credit cards started getting maxed out. Um, near the end, I had defaulted on a personal loan and even lost our home. You'll remember Brian Woodhouse from the very first episode of Crime Beat. He was Mika Jordan's stepfather. The two fathers are now joined forever by a horrible common bond. Brian said when he needed it, people rallied around his family. So he started a GoFundMe fundraiser for Dale. Maybe it's a little bit of karma, a, a little bit of paying it forward. It's, I feel it's just, it's something that I'm able to do. And if I'm able, I should. It's incredible. I, I don't know how to thank him. The wheels of justice move slowly. And it would be two and a half years after Lucas died before his accused killers would stand trial. But before that could happen, yet another blow. On the eve of the trial, Nathan Gervais, the man accused of the most serious offense of first-degree murder, skipped bail. But Nathan taken off, like right before, like, what does he have to lose, right? First-degree murder, you know, he's going to get 25 years. He's not going to get anything added to it, right? And uh, he, it's just unreal. He took off. Gervais was nowhere to be found, and Dale was outraged. It's a nightmare. Our lives are, are, are a continuing nightmare. You know, like just when you think you can sort of take a breath and move on a little bit, you, you can't because uh, there's people that want to get away with murder. Dale had predicted this outcome. While out on bail, Gervais was supposed to be under 24-hour house arrest. But when police checked up on him on Saturday, April 16th, 2016, he was gone. It would have been simple right from the start if he wasn't let out on bail. The court proceedings would continue without Gervais. Asmarsh Law, Franz Cabrera, Josh Pook, and Jordan Liao all stood trial accused of second-degree murder. On May 4, 2016, the prosecution presented its opening statement to the jury. The Crown said, This violent attack started with a misplaced jacket at the club's coat check. I had no idea about the coat check thing. I didn't know that that, that was kind of a shock to me, that this, this idiot screaming at the coat check girl because he couldn't get his coat in time. And that's how it all started. Asmar Schlaw was captured on surveillance video. He became enraged when he couldn't immediately get his coat back. And so the bouncers threw him out. And then when, they were th when the bouncers were throwing him out, he was screaming at them too, calling them these racial names. And that's when Lucas was standing there as a bystander just outside minding his own business, and he said to Asmer, enough with the racial names or something like that. And then Asmer turned to him and attacked him, and all his friends attacked him. It's on video. Out front of the club, Asmer Schlaw violently pushed Lucas. Then his friends joined in and again went after Lucas. They swarmed him. Lucas defended himself and struck Schlaw in the face. But the group pinned Lucas against a wall. That's when bouncers came to his rescue and took him inside the nightclub. During the trial, one bouncer testified he kept Lucas inside for 20 to 25 minutes. Video evidence shows it would have really been less than five minutes. I should note, neither vinyl nightclub nor any of its staff faced legal repercussions for what happened that night. 
the club closed down shortly after this deadly incident. Lucas's friend Bryce thinks about those brief moments inside the club a lot. I had a lot of frustration with myself and looking back at that for a long time and I kept replaying everything in my head for longer than I should have. And I still think that you can't go back and change things, but I really wish that the bouncers had taken that situation a lot more seriously and that they offered different options, like maybe staying in the club for a bit longer, like what's 30 minutes to them over somebody and having to go to the hospital. Like I've worked as a bouncer and that would obviously be my priority is making sure everybody's safe. And I know lots of them would. It's just crazy to me that those guys just rushed us out like they just wanted to get home and call it a night. That's how we felt, yeah. Like they brought us right to the door and said, okay, you guys gotta go now. That's, that's how we felt. That's why Lucas and his friends left through the back door into the alley. They felt they had no choice. Little did they know that Asmar Schlaw and his friends were waiting for Lucas. Lucas tried to escape, to run back into the bar, but his attackers were too quick. They knocked him down and swarmed him. The beating was so violent that first responders were unable to identify Lucas from his driver's license photo. For weeks, the Crown outlined its case against each of the accused. 62 witnesses testified. Many saw the whole thing, including Lucas's friend, Bryce. Several witnesses were Good Samaritans, who also tried unsuccessfully to intervene. When the police finally arrived on scene, they saw Schlaw exit the alley. Officers noticed his right shoe was covered in blood. Like he was running from the scene and he had his whole shoe was soaked with my son's blood. So he was one of the guys, like when Luke, we talk about Lucas being stabbed, he didn't stab him. He's the one that kicked his teeth out of his head onto the ground. Two of the accused testified in their own defense, including Asmar Schlaw. He denied any involvement in the attack. Schlaw testified when he went into the back alley, he didn't even see an attack. He claimed he saw a bloody body on the ground, but he didn't recognize it to be Lucas. He said he went within two to three feet of the body, but said he never touched him. The evidence suggested otherwise, beginning with the animosity he held towards Lucas for what happened out front of the nightclub. Lucas was never alone in that alley. His friends stayed with him, along with several Good Samaritans, until police and EMS arrived. And then there was the shoe evidence. I need to stop here to explain a bit more about Schlaw so you can better understand why his shoes were so important in this case. Asmar Schlaw and Nathan Gervais were both really good soccer players. They played at the highest level of competitive youth soccer in Calgary. There's a rigorous tryout process, so their skills would have been put to the test many times. One of the things every good soccer player has to be able to do is know how to kick properly. You don't kick with your toes. You could really hurt yourself doing that. A capable soccer player uses the instep of their foot, the top inside part of your foot that gives the player more power and less chance of injury. There are photos of the shoes Schlaw wore on the night of Lucas's attack. The top of his right shoe, his instep, is bloodstained. Schlaw maintained the blood was his own, but his story also changed a few times. When he was arrested, he told police they wouldn't find Lucas's blood on his shoes at all. Not even a fleck, is what he said. During the trial, he testified he got a bloody nose from the original altercation out front of the club. He said 
That's what caused the stain on his shoes. He also said it was possible he stepped in some of Lucas's blood when he was briefly in the alley, but maintained he didn't participate in the attack. But forensic testing revealed the blood on Schla's right shoe was Lucas's. His DNA was also found on Schla's left shoe. It was exactly where they used to, where a soccer player kicks a soccer ball. This guy was a soccer player, you know, and so he, the testimony was that they were kicking my son's head like a soccer ball. They were taking turns when he was on the ground dying. During the trial, witnesses testified Schla heard Lucas's cries for help. Lucas told them they were killing him. He was pleading with them saying, sorry, I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't mean it. I didn't do this. I'm sorry, you know, and nothing. They, they just kept on him and kept on him. And then when the, finally the paramedics got to him, they testified that he was just begging them to not let him die. He didn't want to die. And that's all his last words. I don't want to die. Please don't let me die. I should note that along with the pain of reliving details of the savage attack during the trial, Lucas's family and friends also had to deal with the stress of crossing paths with three of the four accused. At that point, Franz Cabrera was the only one whose bail had been revoked. He faced other drug and weapons charges. The others remained out on bail, and Gervais was still nowhere to be found. These guys were on bail, right? So here you are at a murder trial, in a courtroom, and these, these, these bozos are in the, the prisoner box there, wearing their suits and everything. But when there's a break or when there's lunch, they just walk out and just, they're, they're strolling right by you. They're walking right by you. They're, they're hanging with their friends in the hallways. In the lunchroom, I'm standing there and there's two guys that killed my son standing right behind me. Through the smirking and the laughing and the joking around, like, like it's nothing, right? Like it's no big deal. These guys killed my son and they're brushing shoulders with me in the hallway. Why aren't these guys in friggin' jumpsuits and in, in the prisoner box? Like, it's ridiculous. Franz Cabrera was close friends with Schla. His defense lawyer didn't deny Cabrera's involvement in the attack, but tried to minimize the impact of his actions. As with Schla, the evidence told another story. One witness identified Cabrera as someone who stomped Lucas in the face. Cabrera's car keys were found at the scene. Jurors heard Cabrera stab Lucas with those keys. His DNA was on them. And in the hours that followed the swarming, Cabrera sent several damning text messages to Nathan Gervais. One read, bro, I stabbed someone for asthma, and he got arrested. Then, I think I killed him. I'm hiding in an alley. And then there was the evidence against Josh Pook. Another of Lucas's best and oldest friends, Constantine Matai, has never done an interview about what he saw that night. But he testified in court, and he identified Pook as one of the attackers. Matai said Pook braced himself with one hand on the wall while he kicked Lucas in the face. He said at the same time, six to eight other guys took turns punching and kicking Lucas. Pook admitted to participating in the attack when he testified in his own defense. He said he kneed Lucas in the head and threw him to the ground, and that's when the others continued the attack. Pook claimed he kicked Lucas no more than four times when he was on the ground, and said a woman got in the way, and she begged him not to beat Lucas anymore. He told court he grabbed his friend and left the scene. Twelve people up there have heard the story, and I just hope they see through what I consider to be a lot of lying up there on the stand. After six weeks of evidence, Dale Hurd 
had no choice but to have faith in the jury. They tried to make it out like my son was picking fights with people in there. And then, of course, the video comes out and it shows the exact opposite. My son's attacked with his hands in his pockets in front of the bar. It took jurors several days to reach their verdicts. A small measure of relief tonight for the family of a Calgary teen who was swarmed and beaten to death. A jury has convicted three of the four men in the killing of Lucas Strasser Heard. One of the accused did walk free. Nancy Hicks reports. For the first time since the brutal murder of his son more than two and a half years ago, the father of Lucas Strasser Heard left court feeling some peace. I was going to start clapping in there. After nearly three days of deliberations, the jury came back Thursday morning with four verdicts for the men charged in the swarming death of the 18-year-old. Asmar Schlaw is guilty of second-degree murder. Franz Cabrera, also guilty of second-degree murder. Josh Pook was found not guilty of second-degree murder, but guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. And Jordan Liao has been found not guilty and walked out of court a free man. We're pretty satisfied. We knew that, uh, especially with... Uh, with Asmer, we knew he was the, the instigator, started the whole thing, and he's, yeah, justice has been served for Lucas. But that sense of relief was short-lived for Lucas's dad. Within days of the verdicts being handed down, the appeals began. And even before they could be sentenced, Asmer Schla applied for bail. It's ridiculous. The public should, uh, should understand what's the things that go on here, you know, like uh, obviously before he was presumed innocent. Now he's, he's not presumed innocent. He's guilty. He's been convicted and found guilty. So it doesn't make any sense at all why he would be, uh, be released. His application was denied, but Schla didn't give up. His lawyer tried again and was again denied release. But that same day, in a surprising turn of events, lawyers for all three convicted in this case, Schla, Cabrera, and Pook, filed a motion to have their convictions stayed. They argued their charter rights were breached, specifically their right to be tried within a reasonable amount of time. The application came back to a Supreme Court of Canada ruling made earlier in 2016, that set new rules for how long a case can take from start to finish. That case is R versus Jordan, and any applications made citing its time guidelines are called Jordan applications. The people that, that stabbed and stomped my son to death, are, they have a chance to go free. And it's, uh, it's, it's an outrage, really. You know, our, our family's exhausted. Lucas's dad was on what seemed to be a never-ending emotional roller coaster. Sentencing for the three men convicted in this case was delayed until the Jordan application could be heard. It's actually like a kick in the stomach. We really don't understand how this is a possibility, and I don't think the public really even knows that these kind of things can happen, and hopefully they, they will now. Six months after the jury convicted Schla, Cabrera, and Pook, the justice in this case ruled on the Jordan application. It was denied. In January 2017, more than three years after Lucas's death, Franz Cabrera and Asmar Schla were sentenced to life in prison. Schla is eligible for parole after serving 12 years. That means he can apply for release in 2027. Cabrera can apply for parole a year later, in 2028. Josh Pook, who was convicted of the lesser charge of manslaughter, was sentenced to seven years in prison, minus credit for time served. Pook is already on parole. He was first released back in July of 2018, less than five years after Lucas's death. That still wasn't the end for Lucas's family. Even after being handed a life sentence, Asmer Schlaw kept applying for bail, pending his appeal being heard. I need to remind you, this whole time, Nathan Gervais was still on the run. 
By then, he had been gone for more than a year. Lucas's loved ones were beginning to lose hope that he would ever be caught. But the Calgary police homicide detectives never gave up. The father of a Calgary murder victim is praising police for tracking down an accused killer on the run. Nathan Gervais was returned to Canada from Vietnam on Friday. And as Nancy Hicks reports, the victim's family now wants anyone who helped them flee Calgary to be charged. We now know Nathan Gervais fled to Vietnam, where nearly two years later, Calgary police tracked him down. Uh, it was a it was a big relief for us. They've never quit. They never gave up. Officials from the Vietnamese embassy confirmed they helped facilitate Gervais being brought back to Canada by police last Friday. He's expected to be flown back to Calgary later this week. Dale Hurd wants a full investigation done into Gervais' disappearance. This would have been very simple. It would have been simple right from the start if he wasn't let out on bail. Like the decision to let him out on bail cost full 20 months of full-time work for the Calgary police. And that's just ridiculous. Just days later, police spoke out about the hunt for Gervais for the first time. Let this serve as notice to those who are out on bail and flee the jurisdiction. We will persist in finding you and bringing you back to face the charges. Police revealed Gervais was apprehended by police in Vietnam several months earlier. They called me and they said, we uh, got some important things to talk to you about and can we come over and... You know, the detectives showed up and uh, they were telling me, they just said, we got Nathan. And I was just so ecstatic. I was like, like we were high-fiving and everything, you know. And uh, she showed me a picture of him, his pouty little face in the Vietnamese prison. Not in prison, but I don't know, over there. And uh, it was just ecstatic, you know. And they said that uh, it's going to take a couple months to get him back here. But uh, we got him and, you know, I mean, it was kind of nice the police officer or the detectives were saying, it'd be nice if he stayed there for a year. And I was like, what? And, you know, like, well, it's rat infested, kind of, he's getting what he deserves over there. It's like, it's like a hotel over here compared to there. Global News discovered Gervais was arrested for being in that country with a fraudulent passport. Officials in Vietnam then reached out to police in Calgary. In January, we were advised by the Ministry of Public Security in Vietnam that Gervais was to be deported back to Canada. Calgary police homicide detectives were then invited to Vietnam to escort Gervais back to Canada. This is like nothing else in my 28 years of policing that I've ever come across. Like the work uh, by our investigators, the work, uh, the cooperation between agencies was just ter absolutely tremendous. They've never quit. They never gave up. But we're really happy that he's, uh, he's going to face justice for this. Dale Hurd felt like he could finally see the light at the end of the tunnel. But it was short-lived. Days after learning Gervais had been caught, another blow. Asmer Schlaw, convicted murderer, gets let out on bail a week before Christmas, destroyed our family's Christmas, destroyed really my faith in anything. He's convicted. He's not, he's not innocent. There's no presumption of innocence. There's nothing, you know? And so that, it was kind of a high and low, and it was, it was really good to have Nathan in jail, but having Asper out, going to school, you know, Mount Royal University, with, our, with other kids. You know, it's just, it's stunning. Schla was released on $50,000 cash bail. He had a list of 16 conditions to follow, including no alcohol and no contact with any of the co-accused in the case. Schla was under house arrest, except to go to work or school. He planned to attend university. If he followed the conditions of his release, he could remain out on bail until his appeal was heard. This was extremely frustrating for Lucas's close friends, including Bryce Sunberg. Nobody knows that that's possible, and it's, it's crazy to me that it is, especially on a charge like murder. That's, it's really frustrating. I think like not enough people know 
that these things are possible, that murderers are allowed to be on bail. Like, I think the court system is very frustrating, and it, I know it's really hard to change things, but I think if enough people were to say something about at least murderers not being able to get bail while they're sentenced and convicted, I think that would be a really big change in the court system. More than five years after Lucas was killed, Nathan Gervais finally stood trial for first-degree murder. Well, it's a tough thing to be here, but you know, I'd rather be here than have Nathan sitting on a beach in Vietnam somewhere. So I stare at him intently, you know, and it passes from hatred and anger to just bewilderment how somebody could hurt such a precious human being. Like Lucas wouldn't have hurt a soul. Once again, Lucas's loved ones had to relive the horrific details of his brutal and savage death. By that point, his best friend Ramsey was exhausted. Whenever like a court day comes up or something like that, the only thing like anybody ever thinks of is like, oh, like again, you don't want to like after a certain point, it's, I'm not even thinking about, I'm literally not even thinking about the guy. I'm just thinking about like, what's gonna happen to him and like, how long is it gonna take for them to decide if they're even gonna do something to him? Which is basically like what happened with so many of the, the, uh, the offenders, even like the most recent one, the one who like left. When he comes back, there's like everybody speaking, like there's even a, like there's doubts that he's gonna be put in jail. It's like he literally fled the country and there's doubts that he's gonna get put in jail. It's like, it doesn't make any sense to me. For Bryce, it was especially traumatic to once again have to testify. His last interaction with Nathan Gervais was in that alley when he pleaded for him to stop. Because it was a few years after, that's when I started to be more mentally clear and was rebounding myself and I was feeling better and then going through the court and hearing all these things again and having to remember every image and everything. My mind was trying to get it out but I had to reach back in and grab all those memories that I didn't want to have but I knew I had to do it for Lucas and his family. The prosecution alleged Gervais left the bar to get a knife from his car and then used it on Lucas during the second altercation in the back alley. He could be seen on surveillance video going across the street from the front of the bar to get that knife and then return to the club. Court found it was obvious from the video Gervais was clutching something in his pocket, believed to be the knife. He was also seen watching Lucas's movements through the front window of vinyl, stalking him. Then, when he saw Lucas was let out the back, he was seen running around to the alley to intercept him. One day before what would have been Lucas's 24th birthday, five and a half years after his death, a judge found Nathan Gervais guilty of first-degree murder. Justice William Tilleman called Gervais' actions predatory and calculated, but didn't find this was premeditated murder. Instead, the judge found Gervais guilty of constructive first-degree murder. Gervais physically restrained and forcibly confined Lucas and stabbed him. Lucas was pinned between a dumpster, the wall, and the ground, and it was impossible for him to escape. Mr. Gervais was partaking in a group that forcibly confined Lucas before the stabbing began, and as such, first-degree murder applied. I was in the courtroom when this decision was handed down. There were audible sighs of relief in the gallery when the word guilty was read. But it was Gervais' reaction that shocked me. There was no remorse. Gervais smirked and laughed in the prisoner's box. He slammed the door as he left the courtroom. He's just found guilty of killing my son. 
and he's smiling at me and giving me the thumbs up and uh, he's, he's, a, he's a scumbag. But we're gonna just go to his gravesite and you know bring some of his favorite things maybe just a bottle of root beer and you know sing happy birthday and try to try to remember some good things. But Gervais' reaction didn't really surprise Lucas's best friend Ramsey. I guess in a way I don't see them as people because like I don't I don't, I don't give, I don't feel like any sort of respect for them in any way or anything like that. But at the same time, like I said, I don't, I don't think about them enough to, I guess, feel any serious way of them. Cause like I said, I don't, I don't even know these guys. I can hear them like talk and whatever, or like hear what their lawyers have to say. But at the same time, like I do, I have sympathy for them in a way, right? Like I can hear, I hear what this kid has to say at his like, basically his like life sentence, what he says. He just, he like even says to the undercover cop, he's like, yeah, I fucked up and I'm gonna pay for the rest of my life for it. It's like, he knows he fucked up, right? But like, how am I supposed to feel? Am I supposed to feel pity for him? I don't think so, so I don't. But at the same time, it's, it's like I said, it's a strange, it's strange to watch somebody who you could have been friends with like, or not even could have been friends with. It's, watch, it's weird watching somebody your age just like flush their life down the toilet. And they like, he knew obviously, he fled the country. He, he had every, he knew what was gonna happen to him if he ever got caught. And he probably didn't think about what happened to what was gonna happen to him as he was doing it. Which is like I said, I feel, I feel pity for him in that way. But at the same time, I'm glad he's, he's gone. Lucas's little sister, Julia, was 14 years old when Nathan Gervais was sentenced. She bravely stood up in court and read her victim impact statement. I wanted to look at Nathan. I kind of glanced at him a bit, but I think I mostly looked at Brossett Crown or the judge. I saw him kind of just like, I don't know, like chewing his fingers, biting his, his lip, or just going like, mm, you know? I can't think about that, let it sink in. Like, I hope you're listening to me, dude. Or if he's just sitting there all zoned out. It's just like, makes me mad, <laughs> to say the least. Like, he didn't seem super attentive. Like, the main thing is like, I wanted the judge to hear it, but I wanted him to hear it. Like, I wanted to get under his skin and tell him, you know, this is what you did, you know? Lucas wasn't the only guy who was hurt that day. He wasn't the only person. And it was tough because he just, I don't know, he seemed kind of uninterested, you know? It's just, I don't understand. Like, that was really hard. <laughs> Gervais was given an automatic life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. But it still wasn't over. It's really hard to get across just how big of a roller coaster ride this was. Can you imagine not only going through the trauma of one trial, but two, plus the appeals and bail applications in between? It went on and on. Within days of his conviction, Gervais appealed. He maintains the verdict is unreasonable and cannot be supported by evidence. That appeal has yet to be heard. In November of 2019, six years after Lucas was killed, the Supreme Court of Canada heard the appeals of Asmer Schlaw and Franz Cabrera. Gavin Walsh, Cabrera's defense lawyer, presented his argument first. Lucas Strasser heard, would have died, whether or not Franz Cabrera ever set foot in that alley. Immediately, one of the justices responded. Well, we don't know that. That's, that was the evidence of one of the witnesses. The fatal injuries, Justice Brown, were inflicted by Nathan Gervais with a folding knife that he got from his car before Franz Cabrera ever arrived in that alley. What if the death was hastened by the uh, additional attack? Walsh maintained Cabrera should not have been convicted of murder. 
in matters that Cabrera came along after the fatal wounds, after about a minute or more gap. And then it was Balfour Durr's turn to argue Asmer Schlaw's case. Schlaw was still on bail and sat in the gallery of Canada's top court. First, I should, um, I should introduce to the, to the uh, court, uh, Asmer Schlaw sits in the courtroom. He is in the second last row with the, the young man with the glasses and the navy blue suit. He's there with his family. Like Cabrera's lawyer, Balfour Durr put blame for Lucas's death on Nathan Gervais. There was a risk of a wrongful conviction for Asmer Schlaw in this case. And the risk of the wrongful conviction comes about simply because the, the facts of this case were bad. I get this was a, a terrible case. You know, a young man is beset upon in the, in the back alley. He's, uh, this is nowhere near a fair fight. We have a, a large group, a number of people attacking him. Uh, one of these people, Gervais, brings a knife to this fist fight, stabs him to death. But the Supreme Court justices took issue with that argument. But he didn't drop down dead on the spot, did he? It's not like one blow straight to the heart, he hits the ground, it's over. It didn't happen like that, did it? Somebody went to the guillotine and the blade came down. You knew the consequence immediately. This one was a little more complicated, I think. Yes, sir. Agreed. Right. Durr argued it was a complicated case for a jury to hear with so many witnesses and conflicting accounts of what happened. But the justices reminded Durr that jurors were instructed to look at the evidence as a whole. That included the blood on Schlaw's shoes. Mr. Schlaw's evolving explanation of the blood on the shoe, first telling the investigator not a speck and then under cross-examination explaining why there's all this blood on his shoe. There's the evidence of Mr. Schlaw's animus towards Mr. Strasser heard on the evening. There is the surveillance video. There's him going east instead of west when he leaves the uh, when he leaves the nightclub. Isn't there quite a bit here for the jury to pick up on, Mr. Durr? What I'm doing is is I'm trying to show you that even if you when you look at the whole of this evidence, it was so weak as to be virtually useless. The blood on the running shoes is really quite strong evidence. If the jury chose to see it, as they were entitled to see it, that it didn't happen from a nosebleed, it happened from brutal kicking and blood getting all over the shoe. And so, but no, but that goes to identification too, by the way. Uh, Okay, but the blood on the shoe is equivocal. Like, it it doesn't show, it, it doesn't... There's no blood in the toe. I expect if somebody were kicking, you'd kick with your toe. There's no blood on the toe. So that, what my point about the blood on the shoe was, it really is equivocal. At the Supreme Court, each side is allowed to present its argument for 30 minutes. After Durr finished, court took a recess. What happened next is incredibly rare. The court, la cour. The Supreme Court justices came back into the room and addressed the court. It won't be necessary to hear from the Crown. Dale held his breath. Why wouldn't the Supreme Court want to hear the Crown's argument? What was happening? Six years of fighting for justice all came down to this moment. We all wanted to let counsel know uh, for Mr. Cabrera and Mr. Schla that the representations you made, both in your factums and orally, could not have been better. And we are, we're not persuaded. We agree with the majority of the Court of Appeal that the charge to the jury does not disclose reviewable error and the jury's verdicts were not unreasonable. And that was it. Asmer Schlaw and Franz Cabrera stand convicted of the second-degree murder of Lucas Strasser Heard. It's hard to describe just how big this was for Lucas's father. For a brief moment, the pain that's filled his eyes for years was replaced with relief. Wow. 
Um, That's incredible. I'm overjoyed. It's been hell. Like, my life is, is hell, and, and today is a good day. For Dale, having Schla held accountable for Lucas's death has always been important. It was Schla who made the racist comments that night, the comments that spurred Lucas to speak out in the first place. My son stood up to this asthma guy. He couldn't stand it. He was humiliated. And you can even see him on video talking to the guys that eventually attacked my son. And they, you know, they went around back and attacked him and, and, and killed him. Well, as soon as I heard the judge say that Crown doesn't need to speak, I just started got chills. And, you know, and I turn and look over at their side and I see the guy crying over there. So I'm happy with that. Like, I'm sure my son was crying when he was kicking him in the face, you know, when he was bleeding to death on the ground. So. Outside court, our global photographers captured Asmer Schla's final moments of freedom. He would remain out on bail until he returned to Calgary, and then he would finally go to prison. He walked away with his family, and even though his photo has been all over the news for years, he covered his head with his jacket. We have no comment. We have no comment. Asmer Schlaw took off and ran down the street. What his family said next is a bit ironic. Stop! Dad, stop! Do you have any hearts? Stop! That night in the back alley, Lucas begged his attackers to stop. Lucas's father has asked that question of Schla many times over the years. Knowing he didn't, like, fall asleep and die, you know, he was screaming, begging for his life as they kicked his teeth out of his face. That's hard to take. Like, I can't... It's just a really difficult thing to take. People have trouble understanding there's, I think there's evil in the world still. And there always was. And, uh... It's just, it's un unreal that these guys can do this, you know. Like a guy's, a kid is on the ground cr screaming and crying that you're killing him and you're taking turns kicking him in the face, you know, when his head's up against a brick wall. Like it's, it's, you know, like, like I mentioned, I might have mentioned before, we have his teeth, all of his teeth were picked up off the ground and given to us. It's an unreal thing. It's like you're ta I'm talking about this and it's almost like, it, how can this be real? But still after all this time, you know. The pain will never end for Lucas's family and friends. After the appeals stop, there will be parole hearings to attend. And they have to live with the fact some of the men who attacked Lucas have never and will never be held accountable. I definitely think if there was videos in the back, then more people would have been convicted. I think there was a lot more people involved that there wasn't maybe enough on. And if there was video of them shown being there and video of the actual everything happening, then I think these appeals wouldn't have been such like a easy process. I wouldn't say easy process, but such a recurring thing. I think it would have been a lot harder for them to build a, an appeal if there was video evidence of these guys doing what they did. Sometimes Bryce sees some of the other people who were involved, who somehow managed to avoid prosecution. Two of the guys that testified that I know for a fact were back there. I see them at events and stuff like that. It's hard to see them. It's really hard to see them and not do anything about it or say anything, but I know doing that would have no positive outcome or anything like that. I won't say any names, but there was guys that were back there that testified for their friends to get them out of it. And that really frustrated me too. And I know that frustrated a lot of us because we knew they were there, but they weren't charged. So they were trying to get their friends out of it and trying to claim that they didn't take partake or anything like that. Saying that they pulled their friend, like they, they pulled Asmar out of there or something and trying to back him up and say he wasn't there the whole time. but or like Franz and stuff like that. They were trying to bail out their friends. Lucas's friends who were there that night 
will never be the same. Each of his loved ones has found their own way of coping with this senseless crime. I've learned, I guess, how to, not how to deal with it, but like how to deal with it better. His best friend, Ramsey, tries to hold on to the good times, but time has a way of making memories fade. Sometimes he wonders if his photographs have become the memories. I don't know, we would just do dumb, like dumb things where like just do nothing at all. And uh, the main things I always think about are like the pictures that we have of us, because that's really all I can remember. It's hard for me to think of like any specific thing that happens other than just like, uh, like really specific things that maybe, like maybe we did or like the, in one of our pictures we went to Vegas together. So that was just one thing that I'll like never forget that. Another thing is like I used to have this corner in his like bedroom between like the wall and his bed that was just like filled with pillows and blankets and that's where I would sleep when I would stay at his house. So yeah, just little things like that. Over the years, I've done countless interviews with Dale. We've talked on the phone and texted. The pain of losing his only son is always present in his voice and in his eyes. There is no healing. What's next for me is I, I think it's been six years of this hell and you can't focus, you can't concentrate. And the biggest, the best thing I could do, I have a, I have a daughter and I'd like to like, uh, be the best I can for her, but I'd like to start like a, something for my son that I haven't been able to honor him in that way because I've been fighting these bastards for so long that uh, a hockey tournament or, you know, something to honor his athleticism. And he, he was a great kid. He's 95 average. He's going, he was going into, uh, you know, military college to be a doctor. He wanted to be a trauma surgeon on a battlefield. Like he would have stitched these guys up, even if they were the enemy. He, like he was a good kid and uh, life really isn't fair a lot of the time. He wouldn't hurt a fly. He wouldn't touch a fly. He wouldn't, he would never do something like that to anyone. He was the type of guy to, you know, he was like, he had such a soft heart and he loved people and he loved to help people and he would help anyone. That's why he died. Lucas's little sister, Julia, is wise beyond her years. She told me she still tries to see the good in people, to find some hope in humanity. Probably one of the hardest things about all this is I can't remember the last time I saw my dad really smile. And it's just, I just, I don't, I don't know how he, how he does it sometimes. You know, like, like everything that he's he's gone to like every every court he, he just constantly deals with this and people harassing him online like it's just it's not fair you know and all while this is going on he's still he's still my dad and he still knows how to crack a joke and I just I don't know it's just like seeing how much it's changed him and how it's made him so anxious and I just wish I could do something to take it away. You'll remember from the last episode, before Lucas was killed, he and his friends made a plan to go to the world's biggest electronic music festival, Tomorrowland in Belgium. Eight months after Lucas was murdered, they followed through with that plan four of us went for him and we had actually gotten something so they built a new bridge at that festival and we had gotten a piece made with a quote and with his initials in there so he's there forever people had quotes laser engraved into wooden planks and bryce and his friends made one for lucas it reads never forget yesterday but always live for today because you never know what tomorrow can bring.
Thank you for joining me and listening to Lucas's story. If this is the first case you've heard on Crime Beat, please go back and listen to the previous episodes. These are all such important cases. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I also want to thank our production assistant, Ryan Robinson, for his work on this episode. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you have a question about one of the episodes or about crime reporting in general, send them my way. You can send me a message on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks so much for listening. Please join me next time. A gunman on the loose in a quiet coastal town. By morning, 22 people were dead. I'm Sarah Ritchie. I live in Halifax, and I'm a reporter for Global News. On my new podcast, 13 Hours, Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, we'll examine every hour of this tragedy to try and piece together what happened and what could have been done to prevent it. You can listen to 13 Hours, Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.